Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Groda, your co-host for your, this program, along with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello there, Dr. Groda. Good to see you today. And don't confuse the folk. I'm, I'm hardly a doctor. Uh, you're, the, you're the resident patristic scholar here. Doctore in petto. I am so unworthy to be that. Anyway, um, what we think we'll do, folks especially those of you that have been following on all along and, and you've earned, I mean, how many, how many days out of purgatory have they earned if they followed with us along this entire thing, Monsignor? I mean, it's years, right? It is. Uh, it's interesting. We're going to, as Irenaeus basically concludes his book, he sort of raises, opens up that whole question about purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> Be interesting. So, yeah. So, um, but we think that this episode, uh, which we're entitling The Resurrection of the Just, uh, will be the final conclusion to the book Against Heresies. Uh, next week, we will do one more episode on Irenaeus, I think at least one more, where we'll just pick yeah. up a couple topics, because at the end of Keeble's a book, he includes a number of fragments from letters that Irenaeus wrote, and we'll just grab a, a couple of themes and thoughts from those that are, if you will, distinct from what he covers in Against Heresies. Yeah, and you know, Marcus, that that first one, um, uh, where it's. Well, his letter to Florinus, that's the one that's the one I think is going to we I probably want to spend a little time on that one because um, it's so interesting because Florinus was a priest who lost his way. And Irenaeus is trying to bring him back again. It's pretty interesting. I think he had false teachings. I think he was trying to. It was named after him that uh, that he was trying to introduce fluorinated water into Rome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the uh... <laughs> and that's why he got into trouble, you know. But here we are today, you know. They can't even get water without being fluorinated, so it just shows to go, yeah. So anyway, um, so we'll we'll jump into some of those fragments next week, but we're going to close, and I'm going to begin by saying those of you who have been following, and I appreciate the kind emails we've gotten from some of you that are, are listening. We've always emphasized that we're expecting that the majority of, of this study you're doing yourself. In other words, that you're reading the text, you're looking at it, you're thinking about it. We're just covering a few things, kind of tying it together. And the reason I have to say that is because as I look at this last portion, which we're going to cover, which is book five, sec uh, chapters 31 through 36. 
and that's pages in Keeble 522 through 538, the, the end of this, I found this Monsignor difficult to pull together to, you know, to make some kind of orderly bullet points from, from what he was saying. Um, and I don't know if it was just me or, or, or him. I, I, I remember hearing a podcast by a, a doctor, a professor who made the comment that he's taught through Dante's trilogy three times or 13 times. And he says that every single time he teaches it, he gets things new. And I could agree, you know, I absolutely agree with him. That's the way it is with scripture. You, you, every single time you read. And so I can't, I can only imagine if we were to go through against heresies again now, as we go back to the beginning and start over, we'd see so many things that we didn't quite see at the first covering, right? So, yeah. but when I get to this ending, I'm wondering if somebody who's taught against heresies six, seven, eight times, they might have a, a clear summary of this last section. Um, yeah, yeah, and I my comment here is that I uh, that there is a from quite a ways back. Um, scholars have wondered whether the ending of this work is incomplete in some way, because Irenaeus leaves us hanging. Yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't really develop some of these last points. Um, and, and so the, the, the question is, has there been material lost over the years um, on this? We don't, what we don't get here is a kind of uh, peroration in his argument that, um, that is, you know, concise and, and yeah. all encompassing. It, it just sort of, yeah. it just has a hard stop basically. Yeah. I, my yeah. interpretation of that, which is far more scholarly than yours, Monsignor. <laughs> of course uh, it is. And, uh, uh, in fact, I got the, this interpretation this morning when I was out taking care of my chickens. So they're the ones that, <laughs> that what happened here is that Irenaeus, in his long argument, has been doing this for so long that his wife was giving him a hard time week after week, get done with that stupid thing. And so he brings it to a close. He leaves a few things open that hopefully he'll get back to before it goes to publication, but he didn't. And so there's what we've got. Because he needed to go out and feed the chickens that he hadn't gotten to in how many months since he started doing this book. Would you agree with that interpretation? <laughs> it could be. The other possibility <laughs> is that he's gotten a letter in the mail from Pope Victor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or a letter from the publisher. We don't have enough papyrus for this thing. Will you please bring it to a close? I mean, this thing's huge. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to right. imagine what the, the roles that they would have had for this book in the old days. But... Actually, uh, seriously, what I found as I finished this chapter, as I was reading it through a number of times to try and bring it together, what it really struck me is that it affirmed to me my thinking that not only has this been a preaching series that Irenaeus did uh, over a long period of time, of course, 
And even though the whole thing is to address the false teachings of the Gnostics, but the grid that he used to follow was the rule of faith or the creed. Because when you think about the creed, whether you're thinking about now, we're, we're pretty sure, Monsignor, that what we call the Apostles' Creed or the Roman Creed um, has likely not been finalized yet by the time yeah. of Irenaeus. Yeah, what, what we use is the, they would have, I, people, historians talk about the old Roman Creed Whatever literary form it would have been in at this point, we're not sure. But um, but what we have is the Apostles' Creed hasn't been formally promulgated yet. I mean, there are tr there are yeah. some traditions uh, that believe, like one tradition. I don't think it's in here, but where the twelve stanzas of the Apostles' Creed came each from one of the apostles. I mean, I don't know where that tradition started. Was that in Eusebius? You got me on that one. I'm sorry. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But my point is, before we jump into this, I'd like to draw your attention, if you will, go all the way back to the beginning of Irenaeus, page 33, chapter 1, excuse me, book 1, chapter 10, section 1. And I really would like us to begin here if that's all right with you, Monsignor. Yes. Because actually, those of you, I don't know if you, sometimes I found when I go back and look in this book, I'll see something that, man, I can't believe I didn't underline that back then. But it wasn't until later in the book I realized how important it was to Irenaeus I didn't quite catch up on. But mm -hmm. I would say, going back even a little bit more, in on page 32, uh, in the middle were... The paragraph begins, and so too he that keeps unswerving in himself the rule of truth. I would think you'd put a starting line there, and everything from there through page 33 all the way through page 34 to the end of section 2 in the middle should be highlighted. I mean, right, Monsignor, because that's where it yeah. talks about the German churches and one tradition and one oh, voice. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, this is a, an important section that's quoted, I'm sure, in, I think it's in Vatican II even, some of the documents. Uh, it's in the Catechism. But, uh, so that is a really important section. You know, actually, can we just read that one thing out? Yes. That you just commented at the very bottom of, uh, page uh, 33. Yes. We should hear this right now, given well, this whole synodical way. Okay, let me hold that for just a moment, because okay. we'll do that. But before okay. we get to that, what I want to read is section one, because okay. uh, I agree with you. That that's I think now is a great time to hear this, because... Let me begin. He says on the top of page 33, For indeed one may hereby accurately discern, even before our proof, the certainty of the truth proclaimed by the church. Now, stop there then. What he's saying is that, okay, before I get this whole thing started, folks, this whole book, 
before I get into all the proofs, before you get to that, here's the foundational truth upon which this is built. And that's what chapter 10, section 1 is. For as to the church, dispersed as she is through the whole world unto the ends of the earth, yet having received from the apostles and their disciples the faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who made heaven and, and the earth and the seas and all that is therein, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Ghost, who by the prophets declared the economics and the advents and the birth of a virgin and the passion and the rising from the dead and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved, Christ Jesus our Lord, and his coming from the heavens in the glory of the Father to sum up all things and to raise up all flesh of all human nature, and to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God, and Savior and King, according to the good pleasure of the invisible Father. Every knee may bow of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue may confess to him. And he may administer just judgment to them all, that is, <clears throat> may both send into the everlasting fire the spiritual things of wickedness as well angels that have transgressed and passed into revolt as the ungodly and unjust and lawless and blasphemous among men and also to the righteous and holy and to such as have kept his commandments and persevered in his love whether from the first or after penitency may freely give life grant incorruption and compass for them eternal glory. Now, Monsignor, there's the creed. That's the creed. Everything's in there. And the reason I wanted to read that is that if you've been following our discussion, folks, through this book, everything in there has been echoed over and over throughout this book. As, as Irenaeus has been arguing each point almost in order against the false teachings. And Monsignor, as we read that, there's a number of things that jump out, isn't there, that of things we talked about? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, for example, the little yeah. phrase, to sum up all things. Recapitulation. I mean, that's the, that's the doctrine that Irenaeus is known for. And there he begins in there. But also, I thought it was neat that... Um, and also to the righteous and holy, and to such as have kept his commandments and persevered in his love, whether from the first or after penitency. Right, Monsignor? Yeah. There's the beginning, if you will. Um, at this time in the church, we don't have the private confessions that will develop later that we get from the Irish, but... At this time, here's the idea that from the first, meaning from baptism, so uh -huh. whether you've kept it all the way from baptism or whether once you've failed, you've gone through penitency and therefore are given life. Now, this is what I, I wanted to show this whole, this is the whole book, but where he brings us to now is 
the, the last parts of this. He may administer just judgment to them all. So he talks about that, everlasting life. He talks about raising up all flesh of all human. This is the stuff we've been talking about, right, Monsu? We, you know, as he, are we really raised bodily or not? I mean, he spent pages and pages arguing that issue against the false teachings. That's right. Uh huh. So there's the foundation of that. But Monsignor, before we jump ahead to our section, you want to go on also to the next section. Chapter well, just yeah, just to, I won't read it all, but just um, oh, it's so good. It's, I mean, go ahead. Okay, I will read a few par. par- sentences here. This preaching and this faith, the church, this is in section two here on page 33. Preaching and this faith, the church, as we have said before, dispersed as she is in the whole world, keeps diligently as though she dwelt but in one house and her belief herein just as if she had only one soul and the same heart, and she proclaims and teaches and delivers these things harmoniously as possessing one mouth. Thus, while the languages of the world differ, the tenor of the tradition is one and the same, and neither have the churches situated in the regions of Germany believed otherwise, nor do they hold any other traditions, neither in the parts of Spain, nor among the Celts, nor in the East, nor in Egypt, nor in Libya, nor in those which are situated in the middle parts of the world which is probably a reference to Italy. Oh, I was thinking that was in the, uh, where the hobbits live. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, the point I think we want to make is um, the synodical way has the potential of violating this principle that Irenaeus articulates here, that the faith of the Catholic Church is one and the same everywhere. The, um, in fact, I was even thinking, uh, I wish I had it in front of me, the, in the Office of Readings recently, there was, I think, Cyril that was talking about this same oneness that comes through baptism and the sharing of the Eucharist. And he almost word for word goes through everything that he says here, which is an expounding of Ephesians chapter 4 anyway, one faith, one baptism. Yeah. So you see that as the foundation of understanding what the church is in her one faith. Oh, that's right. Thank you. I'm glad we had a chance to do that. That's. I wanted to bring us back to that, Monsignor, because as we close then, you know, uh, it's it's the closure of, of one long defense of the faith. That's what this has been. But it isn't uh, what, what's the argument? You know, where it's, is it just one little thing after another? It's there's an order to it, and he's he's gotten to the point in the whole creed where we're talking about the resurrection of the just. And okay, and as we mentioned in the beginning, uh, I wish I could just give you, you know, points one through seven in this, and maybe a better teacher could do that uh, than moi, but. Um, to, to just oversee, I mean, to give a summary of this whole section, uh, in, in my view, Monsignor, and you, I, I do, the only reason I have freedom to say this, because I know you'll, you're there to correct me if I go too far <laughs> off base, but if we go to page 522, where we're going to begin, 
We've just finished the long discussion about the Antichrist. Um, and, of course, it struck me this morning, Monsignor, did you get a chance yet? I don't want to put you on the... Uh, on the Embarrass you yep. here. Did you do Office of Readings yet today? I don't know if you did. Yeah, I did today, yeah. Uh-huh. The reading was from 1 John, the end of chapter right. 2. Where on it, the Antichrist. On the Antichrist, yeah. and but he, it's that place where he says, who is the Antichrist? And he says, we've heard about the coming of the Antichrist, but there's a bunch of them. And you you really get the sense, and I, there are some scholars that, of course, say this, that, that, that John, when he's writing his letters, is during the time when these Gnostics are starting to pop up. That's how I took it. Yeah, Because uh, he's definitely referring to heretics that were once in, in, their, in their company and then have departed. They've departed. These, you know, if they would have been of us, they wouldn't have left us. But because they left us, they weren't of us. I mean, that's his basic huh. logic, the way he argues everything. Um, but uh, he says... That you know the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? And he says the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. I think what the Gnostics have done. I mean, they come up with every permutation to try and get around. On the one hand, trying to preserve scripture, but on the other hand, trying to say what, whatever they want to say, and they're all over the place. And so, just before we jump into chapter thirty-one, as a summary, at the end of chapter thirty, he says, "However, when this antichrist shall have wasted all things in this world, reigning three years and six months, and shall have sat in the temple of Jerusalem." Then shall the Lord come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, on the one hand, sending him and his subjects into the lake of fire, and on the other, bringing with him to the just the times of the kingdom. Uh, In other words, the rest, the seventh day sanctified, and restoring to Abraham the promise of the inheritance, in which kingdom the Lord saith, that many coming from the east and the west sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, Monsignor, there's his summary of the end. Right. So, however you interpret the Antichrist and all the different things that are in the Apocalypse and all those Daniel and Second Thessalonians, however you do that, the point is, he's saying, because he said just on the page before, hey, <laughs> we don't even know his name. What's important is being ready. That's, that's, and that's right. And these Antichrists in First John are just, these are the little followers of the one great Antichrist, yep. Satan, obviously. Yeah. But he's saying when all those prophecies, however you understand them, are fulfilled, when the Antichrist <laughs> is come, he's fulfilled them, then shall the Lord come from heaven in the clouds. And so now we're talking about in the resurrection of the just. Uh, as well as the, um, the the eternal punishment of that. So that's introduction into this whole section. Um, he begins right away in chapter 31 by uh, uh, addressing the fact 
that there are some heretics that question the resurrection of the just, and they have this idea of overpassing God. And in other words, remember the God above God who's above God, and it might be a, a, a female and a mother and, and all these different terminology that he covered back in book one and two. Yeah. Uh, so you know, whenever... You know, whenever you you plop a theory out there, it's going to have ramifications. And one of the ramifications he points out is that when you go there, you reject not only the resurrection of Christ, but you re you reject our own resurrection. And Irenaeus then proceeds, and we will leave this to you, but he proceeds to just line up scripture after scripture to argue for the the true resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament and then the foundation for our own resurrection. And so it leads us to section two, where first Irenaeus gives the true description of Christ's resurrection and then the false heretics view. And then the details of Christ's resurrection, which lead to the resurrection of the just. So all of that is in section two, right, Monsignor? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty thick section there. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, but that's pretty much, if therefore the Lord observed the law of the dead, that he might be made the firstborn from the dead, and lodged unto the third day in the lower parts of the earth, then afterwards rising in the flesh, that he might shew all the prints of the nails to his disciples, did thereupon ascend to the Father. So there's a summary of, of that. And I, you know, one thing that jumps out to me that he points out that I hadn't thought about was that our Lord observed the law of the dead. The natural order of things, basically, right? That's that whole idea of him taking yeah. upon himself. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Bringing into himself, taking a death. He brought it all onto ourselves. And then he, you know, and then that summation in in section two, where a disciple is not above his master. Um, he's saying how inconsistent and and. Um, objectionable the, the Gnostics are because whereas Christ went down to lead captivity captive, if you will, they immediately just took off for the netherworld. And um, and he's pointing out how doesn't that show that they're you know they're not following Christ. Yeah they there's somewhere in here where they interpret that his going down to the netherworld is really him coming down to earth right and not going down Ooh that's a good question Yeah he uh, they, they have yeah. that in here Yeah Um shoot uh But obviously the, I think the point you know again he's trying to make is that our our fleshly bodies yeah. aren't it's not something that's just left behind and and as christ you know entered the tomb he really did experience um death 
and and he and he rose again in the flesh. Um, well, what's the point of it for these Gnostics? Because when they when they die, they just immediately scoot off to that yeah. place above the clouds, you know. And it doesn't matter what they left behind. They've just molted, if you will. Yes, therefore our master did not straight away soar away and depart, but awaiting the time of his resurrection appointed by the Father, which also was shewn by Jonas, and after three days arising was taken up, so must we also await the time of our resurrection, appointed by God, foretold by the prophets, and after that arise and be taken up as many as our Lord shall account worthy thereof. All right, and um, so there we have a description of this. You know, he's, that's what I'm saying. It, it's, uh, he, he then goes on to, in chapter 32 um, to deal with the kingdom. And I think, Monsignor, this is where Irenaeus is interpreted as at least saying things that could be interpreted as promoting millenarianism. Yeah. Um, you know, is he talking about a, a thousand-year reign of the resurrected on earth before the judgment. So in the first resurrection, are we taken up and then on this earth, the, resurre- the, the just will then reign for a thousand years before. I think that's the way to, a good way to describe yeah. millenarianism. Okay. Or is, is the thousand years reign that is referred to in Revelation 20, a time, uh, and this is Augustine's view, and that is that it began when, and that's why I have a hard time nailing Irenaeus down, because he talks about the, the devil being bound a couple chapters ago, yeah. Well, if you take Revelation 20, that's the beginning of the thousand-year reign. Um, and so, but this thousand years will end with a time of apostasy and tribulation before the second coming. So that's different here. But I guess my point, Monsignor, was as I was reading that, I can— I can see both and in what he's saying. And I think that's, that, that, I think that's a fair thing because um, uh, it's not been very carefully worked out at this point. There's a lot of, um, I, it, well, we'll see as we go forward in the, in the life of the church. Um, Irenaeus can be argued in two different directions. Yeah, he says, because I say certain men have opinions imported from the discourses of heretics and know not the counsels of God and the mystery of the resurrection of the just and of the kingdom, which is the beginning of incorruption, by which kingdom such as have been worthy by little and little are used to comprehend God. Therefore, it is needful 
2 to speak of them, how that it is appointed that the righteous first in this creation. Yes, that's very important. In this creation, which is being renewed, rising again at the appearance of God, should receive the promise of the inheritance which God promised unto the fathers and reign therein, then, in course, the judgment takes place. You see, so uh, is he is he the, talking about millennialism? Or, in my view, when we talk about the kingdom, which is the beginning of incorruption, well, that's now. And that would be Augustine, that the kingdom, or that's John in John 6. You know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And if you eat my body and drink my blood, you abide in me. All that John 6 stuff, he's talking about now, when we ex mm -hmm. experience the Eucharist. In fact, we just had a reading from Hillary in the Office of Readings about a couple weeks ago that talked about through the, it's through the Eucharist that we abide in Christ. So it's, it's now that we begin experiencing incorruption. Now. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's how... Things develop in the later in the later patristic period. It's the reality of um, especially baptism and Eucharist that um, affect how we think about. So, if he's when he says then pointed at the righteous first in this creation, which is being renewed, rising again at the we're talking about now. Rising again at the appearance of God. That's the second coming. The appearance of God, that would be the second coming, should receive the promise of the inheritance which God promised unto the fathers. So in other words, the fulfillment of the promise to Augustine, the land, and he talks about in other places, is fulfilled in heaven. That's the fulfillment. And reign therein. Well, we you know, the thrones he talks about, the 12 thrones of the apostles and... Uh, then, in course, the judgment take place. So there's the judgment. It's the word then that makes it complicated because now we talk about judgment after all this, which would be millennialism, millennial, millenarianism, right? Yeah, or kiliasm. Yes, or yeah. is kind of like in, Ro in Revelation, is a great way to interpret apo the apocalypse as if, Revelations 1 through 21 or 2 is chronological in order, or is it jumping back? Is it repeating itself? I'm of the ilk that says it keeps repeating itself. It's going back and it's repeating the things that are happening at the same time, and so chronologically it's hard to interpret. I'd say that's and, what he's doing here. Yeah, well, I think, well, I've been, I, you know, it's a little confusing, but I think what the sequence in that Irenaeus is thinking about is that you have, first of all, you have um, Satan on the throne. So the rule of the Antichrist. His power is shattered. There's the resurrection of the just. Then comes the thousand year reign. That's where the whole recapitulated creation is made perfect and where Remember, Irenaeus thinks that souls have to be trained and educated to 
to be to bear the image and likeness of God. So during that thousand year period is basically the time it's our school period. We're going to learn what Adam and Eve never did because they checked out of school because of sin. And then comes the judgment. And um, yeah, so anyway, what you just described is is the is millenarianism, which the church eventually said no. Oh, eventually it it tempered it, shall we say? Yeah, tempered it. <laughs> it didn't totally wipe it out, but it did temper it. Yeah, but and I think we put Irenaeus and these other early church fathers um, up to about this point in in the millenarian school or camp, if you will. Yeah, and I tell you one thing: we can't point fingers at them and say, "No, you got it wrong," because to this day, apocalypse is not easy to interpret. No, no. I mean, come on, folks. It's 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 tough. Uh, and um, and Augustine, in some ways, wrote his whole City of God trying to address how to apply it. But one can see, as you just described, that after our res- first resurrection, and we go through a time of training— before we're judged whether we're ready for heaven. And there's no death in that thousand-year period. That could be the foundation for what later would become a time of purification. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What you almost have here is the, is the very beginnings of the later doctrine of purgatory. And in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, um, uh, each, uh, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work which each man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, and only as through fire. But, Marcus, what I didn't read in this section, when uh, Irenaeus talks about the the thousand years of our preparation, our, our education, I didn't hear anything about fire in it. Um, he talks about paradise, about living in in a creation that has been perfected by the work of Christ. Um, well, when he uses fire, it's for the damned. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's for yeah. the the unjust, and he talks about that. Yeah. There's a fire waiting for them, but the purgatorial purging that we yeah. First Corinthians. In fact, I'm not even sure. To what extent he ever referred to First Corinthians three? Oh, well, he does. First uh, Corinthians three, uh, uh, thirteen. He doesn't deal with that one. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't deal with that whole little section. Interesting, interesting. Um, but this idea of that. Um, 
And, and this is where I, I think I just found it fascinating. For he says, first, in this creation, which is being renewed, rising again at the appearance of God, should receive the promise of the inheritance which God promised unto the fathers and reign therein. Then, in course, the judgment shall place. For in that creation wherein they labored or were afflicted, being in all ways proved by suffering, in the same it is meet for them to receive the fruits of suffering. So there's this idea that that the believers in this time, in this creation, that's being renewed, mm-hmm. but as Paul says in Romans 8, is awaiting the revelation of the sons of man. That's waiting for the time when there'll be the re- creation will be renewed. But in this time, we will also receive the fruits of our suffering. And he goes on, and in what creation they were slain for the love of God, in the same to be brought to life. And in what creation they endured slavery, in the same they shall reign. So, you know, that's where we get caught up in this thing, which some of the early fathers, they would say things that could be interpreted different ways. Yeah, that's right. And there's a number of the early fathers that during their life, their teachings were revered and they were considered great scholars and and uh, faithful voices of the Orthodox faith. But then after they died, the next consul said, wait a second, we, th- he, what he was saying was leading in the wrong trajectory. And so there, uh, there's a number of folk. That's why you don't see Saint Origen listed anywhere, right? Or Saint Clement of Alexandria. Or Saint Tertullian. Saint Tertullian. You know, yeah. that there's good stuff, yeah. but some of the stuff, eh, yeah. it could be taken, you know, and it's a good thing. I've never said anything that could be taken wrong. You know, it's, it's really good. After we do these programs, we're burning all the uh, evidence. But, <laughs> but the creation, therefore, itself must be renewed to its old condition and without hindrance serve the righteous. Of course, then he, he refers to Romans 7. But the idea that um, the promises given to Abraham, to his seed, which in here a number of times he says the seed of Abraham is the church, and those who believe in Christ, that's the seed of Abraham. That's over on the next page in the middle. Yeah. Is the church that this promise will be fulfilled in, in the second coming. In the judgment afterwards. Over there on page 525, he says, come about 10 lines down, if then to him God promised the inheritance of the land and he did not receive it in all his own time of inhabitation here, he means Abraham, it must be received by him and his seed, i.e. by them that fear God and believe in him in the resurrection of the just. But his seed is the church receiving by the Lord the adoption unto God. I mean, there's there's Arianus referring to this theology, which we all agree, is that the continuity of Abraham and his, mm-hmm. the promise and the covenants and all of that came through Judah and then now is the church. And that's a trajectory, okay? All right, Monsignor, um, I got to keep pushing this on here, but... On page, if we jump to the 526, 
um, in chapter 33, section 1, we see that in the passion, in the Christ shows us in his passion, this idea that the promise of Abraham will be fulfilled uh, in the resurrection. Okay? And with mm-hmm. a new view to this, when coming to his passion, that he might preach to Abraham and those who were with them that gospel which revealed their inheritance. And he gives a bunch of scriptures there. That is, he it is who shall renew the inheritance of the earth and shall perfect afresh the mystery of the glory of the sons. Um, He promised to drink of the fruit of the vine with his disciples. We know that in the upper room. Intimating both the inheritance of the earth, wherein is drink the new fruit of the vine and the bodily resurrection of his disciples. For the flesh which arises new, that it is which receiveth the cup, which is also new. So neither can we understand him as drinking the fruit of the vine when he hath taken his place with his own on high in the region above all heavens. Neither again are they who drink it without flesh. For the drink which is received of the vine is a thing belonging to the flesh and not to the spirit. And it seems like the the Eucharist, I mean, these are references to the Eucharist. Surely he meant that. Um, Yeah. And they become, a, a, I mean, I, I've made a note here that um, that they become the first fruits of this new creation. Um, and even the means to this new life. But he emphasizes that they are from this world. Yeah, to me there's a, so. I, I may be wrong, but he's making the continuity of the resurrection of the whole person. Yes. Uh-huh. That's the reality of it. We're not just going to be spirits. Don't give Exactly. You know, it's a, a real yeah. thing. We don't know what life's going to be like in the afterlife. Uh, people. Talk- and you know, this is perhaps this is why he, because the Gnostics presented such a fundamentally, um, based challenge to our faith in the resurrection that he keeps talking about the resurrected life in light of the, um, the recreation of, uh, of the old world. So, you know, it's the garden of Eden. It's back, um, in all of its original splendor. The, yeah. we get so used to our, of course, focus in this world that it may be that our time in this world. Oh, I reminded me, yeah, of what of of an experience I had when my mother was in her last days in the hospital, and she had all this equipment on her, and she couldn't talk. And she was basically being kept alive with the breathing tube. And she knew it. And she was ready to go. 
And she communicated that to me. Well, as we're going to deciding what to do, the doctor comes in and says, well, we've decided we can give your mother a multiple bypass surgery. And she looked at me. It's like, what the, what are they thinking? You know, I mean, she's in her 80s and she says, I'm, you know, and uh, I mean, she, it, it, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but I remember being in the hallway with the doctors and the nurses. And of course, they're, they don't want to make a decision. And and, uh, you know, they're afraid of litigation and all those other issues. But at one point, you know, they're not being decisive. And I said, and I told them in the hall, I'm standing there, and I, I, I said, you need to understand my mother. And I held up my hands like this. I said, in her view, this is how long life is. And she had her hand, I uh, had my hand on this side saying, and this is how long our life is in this world. This is life. This is life in this world. That's cool. Well, to me, that's what he's getting at yeah. here. You know, the, this trajectory of our person, body, soul, spirit, there's a trajectory. And you've got to understand that or it doesn't make sense of drinking wine in the kingdom. Wine is a real thing. Wine is a real thing, yes. You know, and there's that continuity of this earth and this stuff. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, that the the spiritual fathers have always said we got to focus on the invisible and not the visible. You know, but still he's he's trying to keep a balance here, I guess is what I'm 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 getting at. Um the um you want to say more on that, Monsignor? You want to move on? I, no, I feel I like we're we just, yeah. I feel like folks, you know, I feel like a podge, yeah. we're just scratching into things. But uh, there's a number of things that I find really fascinating when you go to the next section in um, on chapter 33, 3 at the bottom of 527. Right. When he says the very last, wherefore the aforesaid blessing relates unquestionably to the times of the kingdom when the just shall reign, rising again from the dead. So now, you know. Hey, that's the millennium. There's okay. the millennium. You know, when that happens. Okay, but there is, he's clearly saying. When also the creature being renewed and delivered shall bring forth plenty of all kinds of nourishment of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth. Now, he's, he's talking about reality here. Yeah. This is, this is actual matter, physical matter. Okay. It might be a different one when we see our Lord yeah. walking through a door, you know, so I mean, the, the spiritual yeah. bodies, but it isn't just spirit. Okay. But then he goes on, and this is fascinating, folks. This yeah. is what he says. He says, as the presbyters who had seen John, the Lord's disciple, remembered that they had heard of him how the Lord used to teach concerning those times and to say, and then he goes on to a long quote. And does, Marcus, I wanted to ask you, do you remember, is 10,000, does it appear in Re Revelation? This is a number that came out of the blue here. Well, what he's implying is that the presbyters 
heard from John, something that Jesus taught, and this is a passing on oral tradition of something Jesus supposedly taught that isn't recorded in any of the Gospels. It's fascinating. That's what Irenaeus is saying. and, And he clearly gives it credence, doesn't he? They heard her from John, and John's mm-hmm. the one. They heard it of him, John, how the Lord used to teach concerning these times, when we're talking about the end. And so, so here's what Jesus supposedly said, that days shall come wherein vineyards shall grow, having each 10,000 main shoots, and in one main shoot, 10,000 branches, and in one main shoot, again, 10,000 sprigs, and upon each sprig, 10,000 clusters, and in every cluster, 10,000 grapes, and every grape, when pressed, shall yield 25 measures of wine. And when any one of those saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another cluster shall exclaim, I am a better cluster, take me, by me bless the Lord. Okay, and that's where at least uh, Keeble puts the end of the exclamation, the end of the quote, right? Right. So I've often, I remember once being asked by somebody, you know, John says that if everything Jesus said were put down a book, the, the world wouldn't contain all the books, right? That's what John says at the end of his gospel. Yeah. So somebody say, well, why wasn't this in there? Well, wh- why are the... Why are the things in the Gospels that are there, except that as the as the apostles proclaimed what Jesus said, certain stories caught on and really had meaning. And those are the ones like the prodigal son or the or the sower and the seed or the sheep and the goats, because these could easily be passed on and interpreted and really have a, a, a touching of the heart. This doesn't do it to me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think what, he, what is in his mind is in this millennial period now with this recreated um, creation, all of creation is serving humankind the way it was designed to do. And so it's almost as if all these created things are in competition to please their human masters, if you will. And they're they're growing leaps and bounds. You know, 10,000 shoots give 10,000 sprigs and 10,000 clusters and every cluster 10,000 grapes. And I mean, this is just, to him is given much, much shall be given. I mean, this is, but... Can you imagine, you know, here we are out on, on out on a stream and the fish are competing to get on our hook, you know. <laughs> They're jumping onto the hook. Yeah. And so, but this that to me is fascinating. As I said, Monsignor, it's, fascinating it, it, to it's me supposedly too. Was... something that they got from Christ. Yeah. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about that. Then he goes on in, in section four, a quote from Papias, right? Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. We, we're not going to, I don't want us to go into that necessarily. It's just, again, we have these 
We've already heard about the elders saying things. We've heard this is the presbyters passing on from John, what was heard from Jesus. Here's Papias. So Irenaeus is recording oral tradition yeah. that isn't in the New Testament, but is received through. And Papias, who was a hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp, so there's the apostolic succession passing on the deposit of faith. So, Monsignor, I would say this is interesting also from the standpoint that when we think of what is the apostolic deposit of faith that the Holy Spirit guided the apostles to remember and pass on, and that to this day the church's primary responsibility is the guarding of that deposit. What this tells me is that not every single thing that— that they remembered ended up being in the same protection of the deposit. You know, Marcus, as, as it goes on on page 529, um, he, he comments on the interpretation of, of um, Papias and these others about how they're interpreting this. And you see, I am aware that some endeavor to transfer all this to wild persons <laughs> And to such as believe out of diverse nations and diverse doings, and having believed are of one mind with the righteous. So some are trying to explain this as a kind of metaphor for the abundant harvest of the church as she evangelizes the world. Um, And Irenaeus, obviously people were arguing that that's how this should be interpreted. And he says, yes, but don't forget it has a future reference um, about the return of fruitful uh, paradise to come. Um, nevertheless, uh, or where is it down here? It's, it's about the middle of page 529. Yes. Um, this was to intimate the greatness and richness of the harvest. Um and um, we, well, basically, his point, I think, I, I, it's hard to pull this out, but his point was um, we shouldn't treat these things as metaphors. They're pointing to something real that is going to happen in the future. I think that's the main point I, I, I drew out of this. Um, well, taking this, uh, the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham— for so long, they just assumed it was coming into the promised land. Yeah. Well, that isn't the complete fulfillment. That's the already not yet fulfillment of that. That's right. You know, That's right. It will. The, the he is arguing that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is not also in the church. That's an already not yet. It's it started to be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled in the end. And it reminds me of the parable of our Lord when he says that the the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which he says is the smallest of seeds, and uh, and then becomes a tree with branches, and then the birds are, you know, and some take that parable in a triumphalistic way to always assume that. In, in this world, before the second coming, the church is just going to keep growing and get bigger and 
be triumphant. So whenever we go through bad times, the assumption always is, you know, it's going to get better, folks. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Why? Because we got the parable of the mustard seed. Yeah. The, the truth is the parable of the mustard seed is going to be fulfilled in the heaven. That's the fulfillment. The church teaches that the church is going to go through rough times. Revelation teaches we're going through rough times. We may get a lot smaller. Ratzinger and John Paul and have talked about we're going through rough times. And it may get a lot smaller to where there's only a remnant. And the question is, are we of the remnant? Jesus didn't say that the gate that leads to heaven is wide. He said the gate that leads to heaven is small and few go through it. And so that's the reality. So be careful in our interpretation of parables. That's what he's also saying here. Be careful. Uh, and, you know, the, the fulfillment of this is ultimately uh, in heaven. And even when I say it that way, you got to be careful, right, Monsignor? Because what we mean by being in heaven is misunderstood. We, will, we might talk about that in a moment. Yeah, because, yeah, because... We still have, I mean, this creation, this real substantial creation is part of this future um, glory. Ian, if we jump ahead, there's a whole bunch of stuff here, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, a great things. But if you jump, and a lot of scriptures, I mean, it's mostly scripture, one big long Bible study. But if you jump to the middle of page 531, okay. section 3, we're talking about uh, chapter 34, section 3. He says, to show that the promises were announced not to the prophets only and the fathers, but to the churches also gathered from among the Gentiles, which also the Spirit calls islands, and that they are established in the midst of confusion and endure the storms of blasphemy, and are a saving harbor to those in danger, and a refuge to those who love what is on high, and endeavor to escape the abyss. So here we have the, the fulfillment of all the promises from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the prophets, mm -hmm. and the fathers, Abraham, and then to the church, and that even into the Gentiles, the door was opened as they were uh, grafted on. And the church, right? The church is the refuge. That's right. To escape from the abyss. Yeah. All those early promises were pointing forward. So we jumped, though, to... Uh, the next page, he is saying, well, there's a lot of people that, that don't like all this stuff we're talking about. <laughs> um, and again, uh, there's a bunch there you can, you can read to fill in the gaps of what Monsignor and I aren't because of time. But, but, but we should do the first sentence anyway. In, 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 chapter, chapter 35. Yes go, yes, go ahead. Go ahead, Monsignor. Yeah, right at the bottom of page 532. But if some should have endeavored to allegorize the sayings which are of this kind, 
in other words, these old, these prophecies. First, they will not be able to be found consistent with themselves in all things. And next, they will be refuted by the sayings themselves, expressing the case of the cities of the Gentiles being laid waste and so on. Um, and we'll, we'll go over the quotes to the middle of page 533 there. For all these other passages are unquestionably spoken of a resurrection of the just, which happened after the coming of Antichrist and the perdition of all the nations subsisting under him, the three and a half years, okay. in which resurrection the just shall reign upon earth, growing by their sight of the Lord, the millennium, and so on from there. So there's a kind of a sequence he lays out here yep. about what's going to happen. Yes. Um, and I think it's important to point out that you can't allegorize this thing away. You can't allegorize this. And I did some search. Well, what's, I was trained as an engineer. So, you know, what's an allegory? I, I didn't have the great privilege of being a, an English major, but what is it? You know, what's the difference between an allegory and a metaphor and, or a type? And really, those are the key things that he uses typology all the way through it, without any question. But here he says you can't allegorize it. It's not an allegory. Well, why can't it be an allegory? Well, what I found, Monsignor, when I was looking, what's the difference between typology and an allegory? And the difference is that typology is, in other words, that Moses is a type of Christ, or that Jerusalem is a type of the church, or you know all those, or that the 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 Passover is a type of the Eucharist. Well, the the foundational idea is that a, a, a typology builds on a real historical reality. A person, an event, it's a real thing. And so the idea that in a type that that real thing points forward to an, a, another reality. Um, an allegory isn't based, it, it assumes that what it's basing its argument on is not a real thing. It's a myth or a story. So an allegory might be the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. Um, so it, in other words, is Jonah an allegory? And the church and our Lord argue that no, Jonah is not an allegory. The three days of Jonah in the whale are a type of the resurrection of Christ. And if they're a type, mm -hmm. the church is assuming there was a Jonah. The church, was Adam and Eve merely allegories? Or are they types? Because a type assumes a historical reality. That's right. And so he is saying here, don't allegory, don't, don't undercut everything. If you make it an allegory and run with that, you're basically saying that none of this is historical realities. And so it undercuts not only Christ's resurrection, but our own. And, and you know, think about those Gnostics he's fighting with. Um, for them, the fundamental reality is that 
they are spiritual, not physical creatures. The material doesn't matter. So all of these things can't be taken in a in a literal in a literal sense or even in um, as antitypes. They they have to be allegories because they have to be talking about. They have to make the leap to whatever spiritual reality is that um, that the Gnostics are holding to. They can't speak about real historical substantial things. If we jump to page 536, I mean, there's so much here we go, but if we jump to 536. Hey, Marcus, before you jump, though, could I please one more thing? Yeah. Um, Well, I pointed it out here, um, but I just wanted to, I think, make note again about this sequence on the middle of page 533. Yes. The resurrection of the just. And I just think I had to keep repeating this to myself as I was reading this. To get to get it through his form of of millennialism is um, basically that you have you have the uh, antichrist comes and rules, and then the antichrist is defeated or bound, um, and then the righteous um, um, begin their work, um, or they uh, they will. In this in this perfected world, um, they will live there. They will see God. They will have communions, communion with the angels. They will also be living in the flesh. All those points are are made here mm-hmm. in this in this section on page five thirty three, um, and and I just I just think it took me a while just to get my mind around the sequence of all of this, what he's thinking. Um, and what we'll see, you know, in the life of the church now is his way of thinking is going to, this way of thinking is going to be, you know, going off to the side. It'll be forgotten basically because of the reality of the age of the church. Um, and so things are going to, because the church is such a real thing, and the sacraments are so real, it is as if we're already living in this period. And so um, from that point on, then things have to change in terms of how they interpret these sections. Yeah. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Yeah. The new has come. It's already happened. You know, so we're talking about that. We're not. We haven't arrived yet, but but the reality of of our incorruption has begun, and that's what he yeah. talked about earlier. Yeah. So I mean, that's why some of his stuff could be. If it isn't true of the millennium, it is true though. It's just that we're in it now. It's not yeah. just something we're waiting to happen. It's in it now. All the stuff he's talking about has started now, and it will be completed then. And that's the theological thing that's the already not yet. And you know that long quote at the at the end of um, at the end of uh, section one from Baruch. Um, oh yeah, at the bottom of page five thirty three, there he's basically making the point then that the kingdom, this kingdom of the saints, will have Jerusalem as its capital, and I think he really believes it. Um, that's what, that's another thing that makes 
Irenaeus' thinking so distinctive here. Yeah, he gives that whole long quote there. That's yeah. all of the, the second part of, of, of that long thing. We won't go through it now. I encourage you to, to read that. Um, and you know, the, it's even like people that take, you know, the you know, the second coming is not going to come before Israel is, uh, you know, many look at 1948 when Israel became a nation as, as a literal fulfillment of aspects of Scripture. And how do you interpret that? And, uh, and that gets us into the, the very issues if we jump, you know, for there in section two. Now, all these sayings being such as they are, cannot be understood of things above the heavens, but of the times of the kingdom, when the earth is again summed, summoned by Christ, and Jerusalem rebuilt after the pattern of the, of the Jerusalem which is above. And then and jump down five or six lines or so, a Jerusalem which is delineated by hands, not a spiritualized concept of Jerusalem. I mean, I think he's talking yeah. about the real thing here. Well, it, as the Keeble said in the side note, called this the new heaven and the new earth. So when is this new heaven and new earth? And, um, you know, we have different opinions on that. Yeah. I, I'd say that a vast majority of Christians, well, if you look at the bottom of page 535, uh -huh. so then those passing away, the Lord's disciple John saith that the higher Jerusalem descends upon the new earth as a bride adorned for her husband, and that this is the tabernacle of God wherein God will dwell with men. So there's that, you know, in, in Revelation is at the end of 20 or 21 where it talks about the, the square Jerusalem, the city, the square golden city, you know, with doors of big pearls and each door being one, you know, three doors on every side. It's a square, uh, the, the 12 tribes and then the 12 foundations are the 12 apostles. You know, so you have this, if you go to the shrine of where Mother Angelica's sisters are, and you go into the beautiful church they built, you can't help but see that the image of what he, she based all that on was Revelation. Yeah. And if you look at the tabernacle, the tabernacle is basically built after the description of Jerusalem described in Revelation. Well, here it is. This is the now it's just a, when does this happen? At what point in the chronology? That's And that, that's right. We we of course inherited a tradition now where that new Jerusalem is the church. And where is it found? Where is its capital? In Rome. Yeah. So you can see how, it, you know, there's been some development here. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, and uh, it begins with the things that even Irenaeus says, because earlier in a book, when he points to Rome as that place to which all must agree, 
So we see yeah. that the, the yeah. argument for yeah. the transferring of that. Now, for those of you who know, we're going long today. We're going to finish, but we've always assumed that if any of you needed a potty break or you need to go get a new cup of coffee, you can always pause this and come back to it. So we're going to keep on going. If we jump to page 536, this is where he talks about the reality of the resurrection of the just. And uh, at the end of 35, there at the top of the page, for as he is truly God who raises up man, so also man truly rises from the dead and not in a figure, as we have shown at such length. And as he truly riseth, so will he likewise truly rehearse in corruption and will be increased and flourish in the times of the kingdom that he may be made capable of the glory of the Father. After that, all being made new, he shall truly dwell in the city of God. So there's the end. And I hear in that, that he may be made capable of the glory of the Father. There's that thing you were referring to earlier, Mons, that there's this time when the resurrected person will go through a further preparation. Reminded me again of what we read this morning in the reading from 1 John, where at the end of chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's the call for holiness, perfection, yeah. so that we stand before him without embarrassment. And remember, at way we have to go way back in this, in against heresies. But what is so unique about how Irenaeus describes uh, Adam and Eve? They sinned before they completed their education, so they they were created in the image of God, but they yet had to acquire his likeness. That was going to come by training. And um, they they quit school. They dropped out and sinned. And so, I mean, that's, I think, a key idea in what how Irenaeus understands the millennium, this period of time where uh, human, the, the, the human soul will reacquire, it'll, it'll go back to school so that it can, gain um, that likeness of God. There's a, in this morning's office of readings, I'm on, this is a Wednesday, we're taping this. I think it was Augustine's. I think it's Augustine. It's, it's Leo today, I think, wasn't it? Uh, well, today is a number of saints, but actually yeah, okay. I, I did three readings today because I read all the... Oh, oh, sure. Okay, yeah. But he was talking about suffering and completing the suffering. He, he was doing a reflection on on on, um, on Colossians 1.24, but he was talking about this, the, 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 if you will, the hermeneutic of continuity from the suffering yeah. of Adam all the way through that we will share with Christ in the suffering that we experience 
uh, and I think maybe this was the reading that went along with the two martyrs for today. I think it was. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, the two martyrs, Tertius and whoever, that this suffering that we experience from those that don't accept the faith, we are completing that which is lacking in Christ. All right, this long journey. And if you will, that's the perfection of humanity as we're becoming like Christ. Where he on the cross took all of it to himself, the, the truth is that those who are in Christ share that. We, we do that with him. Uh-huh. And that's Paul saying, you know, in, Col- in Colossians 1.24, I complete that which is lacking for the sake of the church. Okay, uh, everybody, we're going to, we only got um, two pages to go. Two and a half. And so at the beginning of chapter 36, for since men are real, the plantation also of them must be real. Now that word plantation, Monsignor, the footnote says that this translator um, queries culture, Mr. Harvey, on the other hand, would correct from the Syriac, which gives renewal. I think, I think plantation here means the farm in which these uh, resurrected, um, just people live. In other words, the world. If you want to be ready for heaven, you better start doing chickens now so you're prepared <laughs> to take care of the new earth. You, you know, you won't have a job. You won't be qualified. No. Anyway. I think that's very wise advice. But he's also, again, what the other translator is saying is that if since men are real, the renewal also of them must be real. Yeah. That's right. He's emphasizing the reality of the change that takes place through the spirit of those who are redeemed in Christ. Right? That's right. And it, so, in other words, you know, his opponents are spiritualizing everything away. And he, he's saying, no, if we believe in the resurrection of the body, we have to put it in the context of the world in which that body lives. Um, so it's, that's yeah. as real. That world is going to be as real as the body that comes forth from the tomb. And, you know, again, we could go through all that here, but he then says, now when this fashion has passed away and man is made young again and hath become ripe for incorruption so as never more to be susceptible of decay from age, there shall be the new heaven and the new earth. In them being new shall men abide always new and in communion with God. So, you know, what is Irenaeus trying to emphasize? He's, with all these people trying to look for all these, he's trying to say, this is what's going to happen, guys. This is real. There'll be a resurrection. We say it every, in every time we recite the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's what he's emphasizing. But then, Monsignor, he starts delving into stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he starts delving into some stuff yeah. 
that you want to, that's what you're saying, that the, the commentators, the scholars saying, well, there's something missing here, folks. There, there's something missing. What's the problem, Monsignor? Well, he talks about um, a hierarchy of the redeemed here. Um, uh, in and it, it's, um, 537 is the page run. 537. That there is this distinction of the abode of those who bear fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Any, so any, any, and then he goes on to say, some will be taken up into the heavens. Mm-hmm. Some will be living in paradise. Others will inherit the city. Um, and on that account, the Lord says, in my house, Father's house there are many mansions. So it sounds as though there are different um, sections of heaven. He begins by saying, and as the elders say. Right? Yeah. He begins, so, that's on line number six. So this, he's passing on, and he's saying it as if the readers are aware of this interpretation. He's not introducing a new thing. He's saying that the elders gang, as we've heard, imply that there's these three. Now, it makes me interesting to remember that which level of heaven did Paul say he knew somebody got to? Oh, yeah, up to the... The seventh. Seventh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this idea of... of Levels. Levels is not a new thing. Uh, Dante. They're not C.S. Only... Lewis. C.S. Lewis. I mean, you know, remember where the where Aslan has them at the further higher up and further in. They still have a right. journey to make. Yep, 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 yep. So this idea of levels is not new, but what he's implying is that this thing that he's throwing in here at the end is something that he heard from the elders and that he's assuming his audience. And that is that there's um, the, the heavenly abode, uh, there's a paradise in the city, and it's based on the idea of the parable of the sower. You know, the seed that falls on good soil uh, will produce hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, and so he's Im- implying that to that. Yeah. But he's basing it on an idea, uh, maybe... Maybe Irenaeus had a business on the side, selling furniture. Well, the couch with three compartments? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was wondering where that came from. The first time I read it, I was reading it too quickly. I had a coach with three compartments, and I was thinking about first class, second class, third class. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's almost as if in the beginning of the whole book— Way at the bag, he's thinking about these guys, and these Gnostics are talking about a couch with three compartments. And how's he going to get around to explaining what that is? So to do that, he writes this whole book all the way through, all 500, until he finally gets to the end, and he says, this is the couch with three compartments. Does he... Does he use that expression earlier? No, he doesn't. I'm just being facetious. I lo- no, I was curious uh, about it too. I actually did a search on my um, <laughs> on my ebook on this, and I yeah, 
This is the only time it appears, according to that. But it's almost like he's. This is the conclusion of the, and this is the true couch of three compartments on which shall recline all who feast, having been invited to the marriage. So yeah, I don't remember the couch with three compartments. And it, again, it's it's something that the elders have said and gets passed on, and pretty yeah. soon everybody knows about it. And and not only do they know about it, but then there are Gnostics are coming up with their own interpretations, and he's saying, no, this what he's talking about here. Uh, that such is the order and arrangement of those who are saved. We are told of by elders, disciples of the apostles, and that by the aforesaid degrees they advance. And this is another, this is a little bit different, right, Monsignor? This is Yeah, this one is different now. Yeah, first by the Spirit they ascend unto the Son, and then by the Son unto the Father. And the Son, in process of time, yielding up his work to the Father, as also was said by the Apostle, that he must reign until he shall put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So now again, we have stages of the end. And I wonder, I wonder if he's thinking of, of this millennial reign, or this millennial period, this thousand years, is a time when... Um, basically, Christ will rule, and he will gather all things up to himself. So the creation is perfected and brought into conformity with the will of God. And now Christ will offer it up to the Father at the end of it all. Doesn't Augustine in the City of God make a big point on the first resurrection? No, or maybe it's not Augustine. It talks about there are three resurrections. Who is that that talks about three resurrections? Oh, the first, the first is when in baptism. Okay, well, that sounds like Augustine. It's either that or Cyril. In other words, the first yeah. conversion, the first is baptism when we're a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. The second is what we often refer to as the first resurrection, and then the third is the final judgment. So the first, and I think that's in the city of God, and the, the, the first is when, in, in Ephesians, when it talks about, by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works. He's talking not about the final salvation. He's talking about when we were pulled out of whatever craziness we were in. It wasn't because we were so good then that God saved us, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and then by grace we were pulled out of that craziness and brought into the church. That's the first resurrection. See, that that's what this sounds like. Yeah. The first by the Spirit we ascend unto the Son. That's now. By the Spirit, by grace, we have been brought to Christ. We've been, all right? And then uh -huh. in, the, in the resurrection, which is often called the first, the, then by the Son unto the Father. That's the, and then we'll have the final consummation when all of Christ works will be presented to the Father. Now, I'm not saying that's the right interpretation, but that's one way. Oh, that's good. That's a great, that's very helpful, Marcus. 
I have to look that up. And it, it, probably in Augustine, isn't that? Well, so? it's in actually in one of the Office of Reading. Second, it has that yeah. quote where it talks about the three resurrections. I can't remember who did. Okay, uh, we've asked, we probably waxed far more eloquently than we should have in this time. But if we turn to the very last page of the book, um, there's a summary. And it would seem to me, we looked at the summary at the beginning, that he's, which was the, the foundation on which he did his entire argument from the book, and then he brings it to an end. And it seems to me, Monsignor, that, that what he's doing is with all the arguments that he's made with all, against all the different Gnostic ideas that are floating around, he's bringing it to a pinpoint finality. So we have to read this as the conclusion of the entire thing. When he says, in all these things and by all, the same God and Father. Now, you see that, Monsignor? That's, that's mm-hmm. his point, right? It's one yeah. God one and God. Father. After all these things, there's only one God and Father. Is manifested who framed man and promised to the fathers the inheritance of the earth who brought forth the aforesaid creation in the resurrection of the just and accomplished the promises to perfect his son's kingdom. Afterwards, as a father, vouchsafing those things which neither eye hath seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. For indeed there is one Son who fulfilled all the Father's will, and one race of mankind in which are fully accomplished the mysteries of God, whom the angels desire to see and are not able to to trace out God's wisdom, whereby his handiwork is perfected, being made of one form and body with his Son, that his offspring, the firstborn, the Word, may descend upon his work, in other words, upon what his hands have framed, and may be received thereby, and that his work, again, may receive the Word and ascend unto him, overpassing the angels, and it shall be made according to the image and likeness of God. There's Irenaeus bringing it all together. There it is. And remember how, how he makes the point that we were, all of human creation was made in the image of God, but we haven't yet acquired the likeness. And that requires this process that he describes here. All right, Monsignor. This has been fun. I hope the audience has enjoyed it. Like I said, we'll do one more so that we can close the whole book. We can't quite close it because he's got a bunch of things he's put in the end. He has all these fragments. Um, So, Monsignor, we'll come back to that next week, right? We will. You know, Mark, so I just sum up my own thoughts on this last Please. section too. Please. Because for us um, as modern Catholics, we're not, those of us that came out of maybe certain Protestant traditions that talked like this, we would understand some of this language. But for most Catholics, this is kind of uh, perplexing stuff. Mm. And, you know, just in the 
history of the of the development of doctrine, what's what's that, what's happened here is when Irenaeus wrote this after he after Irenaeus comes um, the, the age of the church, the idea of the age of the church. The church is not simply small little communities of people in houses anymore. It's a worldwide institution. Yeah. Thinking about the sacraments, about the reality of of the life in, of living in the sacraments, and also the fact that there is a Christian emperor now. Um, all of these things affect the way that the church begins to understand eschatology or this doctrine of the last things. And um, so Irenaeus represents a very, very early thing in that. Um, and it, it has moved on in some right. ways. You made a comment last week that I didn't exactly agree with, but in my point was this. You had said that the, these early people when they thought about the second coming and looked at it in the way in the future. I think you'd made that comment. And yeah, I, I, did. I didn't take it that way. I, I, when I read scripture, my earlier fathers, it seems that they, they're they still in the anticipation that that it's, it's in the near future. Yes, in Scripture, that I agree with you. In the in the in the New Testament church, there, yes. there's no question. He's within your lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's coming again. And I'm of the ilk that the scholars that want to say they were wrong, no, they weren't wrong. That that what they were talking about was a a living out of our faith in Christ in the life we've been given is that we live our life with the anticipation that this is coming soon. And that Irenaeus, the reason they didn't see and define it so much as the age of the church, is they weren't anticipating this was going to be a 2,000-year thing. They didn't, I can't imagine them thinking that we're going to be around, that this is, that even right. if he's talking about a 1,000-year reign, that's coming soon. Right? I mean, that's to me. Yeah, was because, the, to me yeah was because the, remember, he, he taught us, he taught that, the Antichrist hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. That lies ahead of us. So. Right. But he, he would say it, it's, but, but be looking for him. Right. I mean, be yeah. looking for him. I can't give you his name, but uh, we've got to be ready because just like Peter says, or like Paul says, or like our Lord says, um, the time is short. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first began. So it's it's coming. And so that's why he's describing it. And, and in some ways, the reason he goes into so many details is because he's expecting it. If it's way in the future, then why worry about it? You know, it's a, to me, it's a... But um, it, it isn't like the guys in 1988 that said these are the 88 reason he's coming in 1988. That's not what he's caught up in. But no. he, to me, he's caught about in, um, are you going to be one of the just? You know, that's the issue. Are we, are, are we of the just? Cause it could be, it could be now. You know. Any other thoughts, Monsignor, before we, no, I think we've... Okay, why don't you close us with prayer, and then we'll pick up next week for the final discussion of Irenaeus's 
writings. All right. And um, this prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours today, I think pretty much sums up where we've been today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we celebrate your Son's resurrection, so may we rejoice with all the saints when he returns in glory, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. Uh, And thank all of you for joining us on this. Sorry we went a little bit long today, but we'll... Like we'll pick up next week, and then we'll finish the last fragments of Irenaeus, and then uh, then we'll see what we'll do next on a Deep in History uh, podcast. God bless you. Thanks for joining. God bless you. Thank you.